Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be discussing the difference between being religious and honoring God with our hearts. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we get started? Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your word and for this opportunity for this group to gather. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word as we go through and continue our study of Matthew. I pray today that you just continue to speak through me and each person who speaks up today so we can continue to learn from one another. The gift of your word to us is just so wonderful. And as we see all the connections that just go throughout Scripture from the Old Testament thousands of years ago. And it's just an amazing story. Father, help it to be not just a story to us. Help it to be not just more knowledge to us, but help us apply it in a way in our lives to change us and turn us into the people that you want us to be. And we ask all this through your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing our study of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 15 today. And we're going to see a little bit of a change in Jesus' ministry beginning in chapter 15. Up to this point, Jesus had mainly focused his ministry on the Jews. He's now going to confront the Jews. He's going to show them how they are just hypocrites in the way that they judge what is clean and unclean. He's going to use that as kind of a bridge to now begin to go and minister to the Gentiles. And so we're going to see that little bit of a change beginning here in chapter 15. So why don't we begin um, in chapter 15 of Matthew, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, so these are the big guns. Here they come. These are the religious leaders coming all the way from Jerusalem to where Jesus is. And let's see what they say to Jesus. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? All right, so they didn't come and say, you all are violating the law of the Old Testament. They didn't come and say, this is what you're doing wrong, that in your teaching that is contrary to what God gave us in the law. No, they're not saying that at all. All they could come up with is that your disciples are transgressing our traditions. All right, and we've talked about this before. The Jewish leaders, they had come up with all these traditions in these man-made regulations that they considered equivalent to Scripture. So let's look at what is the tradition that they say is so heinous that it required the big guns of the Jewish leaders to come all the way out from Jerusalem to come confront Jesus. What do they say in verse 2? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. A ceremonial tradition here. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So here he goes. He's going to point out how you're telling me I'm going against your traditions. And he's saying, Why is it that you yourselves in your traditions are actually going against God's commandments? They had elevated so many of their traditions and their interpretations of the law with these detailed regulations, they had put them to a place of authority equivalent to Scripture. And so let's see what he's going to say they've been violating. Verse 4, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. 
And so Jesus is referencing the fifth commandment that he had given Moses. Verse 5, this is Jesus still talking, but you say, so here comes the tradition that they put into place, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. So they had come up with this kind of a rule, a tradition, that rather than helping out your parents financially, if all you said to them when they had a need, even if they had a financial need, you didn't have to help them out, and you wouldn't be dishonoring them if you just said, yeah, everything that I have, I'm giving it to God, even though they hadn't given it to anybody. They hadn't used it in a way. They're keeping this gift that God gave them. Their tradition gave them an out. If they just said this, if they said to their mother or father, anything of mine you might have that might have helped you, it's been given to God, even though it hadn't, you were off the hook. So Jesus says in verse 6, he is not to honor his father or mother by saying that. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So their tradition, this is just one example. There's so many examples of these rules that they put in place that they felt like externally, if they did these things externally, well, then they were good with God. They were doing what God wanted because these were their traditions. And some of them were actually totally counter to what the law said, what God's word said. So verse 7, he calls them, you hypocrites. What does the word hypocrite mean? A hypocrite is a person who is different on the inside from what they project on the outside. The Jewish people, they were really rebelling against God. They were not being spiritual. They were focused on themselves. And so Jesus is going to reference this scripture from Isaiah that we've looked at several times. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. So their worship consisted really of only the rules and made-up things that they came up with that were not true worship of God. They did them to bring attention to themselves, and Jesus is calling them hypocrites. When you really look at tradition, it requires no faith, no trust, no dependence on God. It really appeals to pride and self-righteousness. And tradition, in a lot of ways, can really be just followed mechanically and thoughtlessly, without conviction. There isn't sincerity of your heart. The Pharisees had added all these rules, lots of rules that were external practices and these traditions that could be followed and practiced. Some of them were difficult, but they could be done. And they watered down God's word, which couldn't be kept on your own. And that was the purpose of it, to show that you were a sinner. But they thought they were righteous because they were abiding by these traditions. And Jesus is saying that they're wrong to elevate these traditions to the level of Scripture. Even today, there are many denominations that have done the same thing. And Jesus is saying it's a hypocrite to think your tradition in these things that you've come up with enhance God's law. And I can point to Catholic and Protestant alike where various things have been put into play that are not in the Bible at all, but they're elevated to the equivalency of Scripture. Jesus says that's wrong. The Pharisees knew they couldn't keep the law, and so they kind of hoped that the Messiah would come and abolish it and provide something easier for them under the new covenant of Jeremiah 31:31. 31, 31. But 
God gave the law to Moses, and God doesn't change. We read that in Malachi 3.6. These leaders, they were just self-righteous, and they were using their own standards rather than God's. And so Jesus is saying, that's wrong. You're a hypocrite. You look good on the outside, but your heart, he says, is far away from me. You don't have a heart for God. So let's continue on. And he, being Jesus, called to himself the multitude and said to them, hear and understand. So now he's going to call the crowd to come and listen, and he's going to evaluate what he's been teaching. And he's saying, sort of like he had said before, he who has ears, you need to listen up. Listen to what I'm going to explain. And by the way, he's going to talk about being unclean. And let me just take a little sidebar here. We see a lot mentioned in the Old Testament about what's clean and unclean. Foods were either clean or unclean. If you had leprosy, you were unclean. A woman during her monthly cycle was unclean. Unclean doesn't mean that the condition is sinful, but it was meant to give a picture representing sin, that when you were unclean, you were unfit to participate in worship. And it was to show how sin separates us from God. But the person's condition was not a sin. If you were a leper, just because you were a leper, that condition wasn't sin, even though you were unclean. Let me just sort of clear the air on that. Okay, so let's see what he says. He's going to talk about defilement and unclean. Verse 11, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. God looks at the inside of the person. He looks at their heart. It's not what is on the outside that's unclean. The unclean heart exits through your mouth, you might say. It's not what you put in your mouth, but it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? So Jesus now is in private with the disciples, and so he answers their question with a parable to teach them more truth. Jesus probably meant to offend these people, calling them hypocrites. So he's speaking truth to them. Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. So the Pharisees, they called themselves teachers and guides to the blind. You can go take a look at that over in Romans 2.19 if you're taking notes. Jesus says that they're also blind, and they're leading the blind into judgment. You might think he's saying kind of like when we looked at the parable of the weeds, that they were weeds that were planted by Satan, and their hardened hearts were not God's work. They thought they knew the law, but they were arrogant, and they were ignorant of what the meaning and the intent of the law was. And a lot of their traditions were just contradicting even what God's law was. Verse 14, he says, Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So Jesus is saying, just keep away from them. They're headed into judgment. In pit, you could translate as to hell. Verse 15, And Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he, Jesus, said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? So he's talking about food and ceremonial cleaning and cleansing. These are physical things. They're done on the outside. They're not spiritual. 
Verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. So ceremonial washings, it doesn't cleanse your heart. It does show the morality of the person, and God looks at the heart. It's the inner person and not the outward appearance. You could go all the way back to the Old Testament and see God has been saying this. If you're taking notes, take a look at 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7, and the same thing is said. God looks at the heart, not at the outside. Verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So these are two cities that are considered at that time as the sort of the epitome of Gentile uncleanliness. Remember, the Jews viewed Gentiles as being unclean. In fact, it was against their tradition to even go into the house of a Gentile. These two cities are on the east coast of the Mediterranean, by the way. So it's that area that Jesus goes to. So Jesus is now moving into Gentile territory. Do you see this shift of his ministry? And as I said, a Jew considered even going into a Gentile home, it was so unclean that if you did it, then you would be defiled. So let's see what Jesus now does. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from the region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So isn't this interesting that a Canaanite woman, who, by the way, is a Gentile, and a Canaanite was viewed as the most unclean of all the Gentiles. But here we have this Canaanite woman who the Jews view as unclean, but she recognizes Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah. These religious leaders, they don't recognize Jesus that way at all. Isn't that interesting? Verse 23, but he, Jesus, did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, send her away, for she is shouting out after us. So the disciples aren't showing much compassion at this point for this Gentile woman. I think Jesus is not answering her not to ignore her because we're going to see this is where his ministry is going to start headed towards the Gentiles. I think he's trying to actually demonstrate to his disciples that they shouldn't be treating the Gentiles this way. So he's just he's kind of letting them see what they have to say. And then finally, well, he now answers to even try to teach them a little more, verse 24. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what the father told him to go to the Jews first. Remember, it's the Jewish people, the Jewish nation who God had made the covenants with in the Old Testament, not the Gentiles. But let's watch what happens here. But she came and began to bow down before him. I'm in verse 25 saying, Lord, help me, all right? She's worshiping Jesus. She knows she needs a Savior. The religious leaders certainly don't think they need one. They're self-righteous. They're fine. They don't need a Savior. One point I want to make before I read on, the Canaanites were also so hated by the Jews, they called them dogs. And dogs back then, they weren't really kept as pets as they are today. 
They were used by shepherds, but dogs were viewed as wild and unclean, and so they called them dogs. I just wanted to kind of set the stage for these next couple of verses. So she cries out, says, Lord, help me, verse 26. And he, Jesus, answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, children's bread is a reference to the Jews and throw it to the dogs. He's referring to the Gentiles. He's saying that it's not good that he came for the Jews and they've rejected him. And yet we're going to see she's going to acknowledge that she recognizes she's a Gentile and a dog that depends on her master. Watch what she says, verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So she's saying, look, yeah, you're right. I'm a dog, but I depend upon my master. She has spiritual poverty that we've talked about before. She knows she needs a savior and she's showing humility saying, yep, I'm a dog and I'm depending on you as my master to take care of me. She's acknowledging Jesus with this humility. Verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So Jesus was deeply touched by her faith. I think he probably just feigned like he was going to ignore her to really help teach the disciples that Jesus was now going to graft in the Gentiles. Her faith was great. Think about her. She's a Gentile, so she had not even been exposed to a lot of the light and teaching of Jesus, Jesus' miracles and what have you. Not much had actually been revealed to her yet, yet she still believed. She knew she didn't deserve what Jesus had promised. She knew what Jesus had promised to the Jews. She knew she wasn't Jewish, but she was humble. The Gentiles we see responding with greater faith than most of the Jews who had had a lot revealed to them, even going back into the Old Testament time where they had scripture that said the Messiah would be coming and Jesus has been fulfilling a lot of the Old Testament prophecy as we've looked at as we've been going through Matthew. Verse 29, And departing from there, Jesus went up along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountains, he was sitting there. And great multitudes, by the way, this is most likely Gentiles, multitudes of Gentiles now, because that's the area that Jesus is in. So great multitudes, probably of Gentiles, came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others. Dumb meaning not able to speak. And many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So that the multitude marveled as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So that's another indication that this is a group of Gentiles, because that would be a Gentile response to say, we are going to glorify the God of Israel. Verse 32, and Jesus summoned to himself his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the multitude, this multitude of probably Gentiles, because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So Jesus wanted to feed them before they left. Remember, we saw this in one of our last lessons about feeding of the Jews. And I said, eventually we're going to get to a story of Jesus feeding the Gentiles. So let's see how this unfolds. 
verse 33. And the disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in a desert place to satisfy such a great multitude? Okay, so had the disciples already forgotten the feeding of the 5,000 Jews that just happened just previously? Maybe they thought that Jesus could only perform miracles of feeding 5,000 Jews. Maybe it was this location. Maybe it was more isolated and they didn't think Jesus could bring about this miracle again. Who knows what's going through their head, but they obviously are in a quandary saying, how are we going to go about feeding these 4,000 people? And it's more than 4,000, by the way. It's just 4,000 men, as we'll see. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven in a few small fish. So very similar to last time. So at least they were able to find a few things. There probably a few people had come packing a lunch. And maybe they thought, well, we need to go gather at least a little something. Jesus has to have something to work from in order to feed the multitude. We got to at least be able to find something and then maybe he can do his miracle again. So let's see how this plays out. Verse 35. And he, Jesus, directed the multitude to sit down on the ground So think about it. There's going to be 4,000 in this group. It's just men. That doesn't include women and children. So we know it could be if they each have a wife, that's 8,000. If they each have two kids, you're getting up into some big numbers pretty quick. Just think of the logistics of trying to get all these people to sit down on the ground and be orderly. Verse 36, And he, Jesus, took the seven loaves and the fish, And giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples and the disciples in turn to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven full baskets. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And dismissing the multitudes, he got into the boat and he came to the region of Magadan. And that's really Magdala. It's called in the King James Version, which is the home of Mary Magdalene. I've actually been there during my visit to Israel. Let me just go back and unpack this a little bit. There's other indications that would tell us that these are Gentiles, not only because of the geographical region that we're in, But when you actually go back and look at the Greek that is used in this story compared to the feeding of the 5,000, the term basket that is used here in this Gentile version in the Greek, it's actually a word that is very Gentile. It's a Gentile term for basket. And that's used here. And when you go back and look at the term for basket in the feeding of the 5,000 over in Matthew 14, we read that in Matthew 14, verse 13 through 21, the word used for basket is more common to the Jews. Another indication that maybe this is different, and this may be a stretch, but there's seven baskets here. I don't know what that would signify. I told you some commentators say that 12 baskets left over from the feeding of the Jewish multitude represents the 12 tribes of Israel, perhaps. But in any event, I think what we need to take away from both of these stories is that God can take whatever we have. We just have to be willing to give it to him. We've got these seven loaves and fish And if we just give him what we have, he can do amazing things with it, working through us. But we've got to be willing to turn over to him what we got, which, by the way, he's given to us anyway. So many times there might be 
opportunities for us to share the gospel with somebody or be a witness. And we'll sit there and go, oh, I don't think I, I don't think I know what to say or I don't have the words or I'll be uncomfortable. And all Jesus wants us to do is just give what we got. Do what we can of our time, of our talents, of our money. If we will just come to God and say, look, this is what I've got, and I'm turning it over to you. You do what you want to with it. Look what he can do with it. I mean, not only feed them, but have abundance left over. And I'm not trying to teach a prosperity gospel here. That doesn't mean if you give to the church that then you're going to be rich. You might because you're showing you're a good steward of the resources God gave you, but that's not what I'm talking about. God just wants us to trust him and give him whatever it is he's given us. Just have the faith and trust to turn it over to him and let him do something amazing with it, and he will. Even your job, where you are right now, if you just say, God, you know, you've got me in this place and I don't know what you want to do with me, but just work through me. Do something today. Work through me. It might be that you don't want to lead a small group to your church. Maybe there's something you could be doing. It might be being a greeter. It might be handing out flyers for the service. Whatever it might be, just say, God, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but I'm going to give you what I got. I know I can park cars or whatever it might be. Just give him what you got, and he will make unbelievable things out of that, and it will be in abundance, as we've seen here. In summary, the things that I sort of take away from what we've read here, and then I want to hear from you how we might apply it, is we see Jesus came for the Jews first and then the Gentiles, but God always evaluates our heart. It's what's on the inside. It's not what's on the outside. It's not our outer appearance, and it's not just doing traditional things. I don't know where you might go to church. I've been to some churches where it's just the same old thing, repeat, 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 and you look around and everybody, it looks like they're in a coma because it's just this tradition that's just repeated, repeated, repeated. And people think, well, on the outside, I'm at church, so this is going to honor God. But where is your heart? If your heart isn't in it, then it's not doing much for God. And so I'd ask you just to think about where's your heart? When you go to church, where's your heart? When you're singing those songs or not, Maybe you're just standing there because you don't think you have a voice. Where's your heart? At least if you're thinking of the words, I'm not saying you got to sing. But at the same time, you can say, look, God, I have a terrible voice, but you gave it to me. I'm going to give you what I got and I'm going to sing. And I love it when I hear people around me singing in church and they've got the worst voice, but they are singing, baby, and they are praising and honoring God. I'm pretty sure God loves that as well. So Think about that when you go to church. When you look at the Canaanite woman that we see in today's scripture, you look at her saving faith. And it, what saving faith is, it's recognizing that you've got spiritual poverty and that you need a savior. You can't get there on your own, which is the exact opposite of what we see from the Jewish religious leaders. And God loves it when we cry out for help and we acknowledge that we're in total dependence on him. I want to hear from you all. How can we apply this today? What resonated with you? How can we use what we learned today to bring glory and honor to God?
One thing is hits me in this lesson is how Jesus rebuked the religious leaders that were teaching, leading away from God. It really strikes me that he's really strong against them and gives you the lesson that God doesn't respect religion. God respects righteousness and submission and following him. And to me, it's the warning is Christian leaders, Christian teachers, be cautious. Don't lead away from the scripture and the gospel. That's the worst thing you could do. It'd be better to be timid and be unsure and not say anything than to boldly lead somebody away from the teachings of the gospel. That's what hits me. That's really good. I know Ken and Chris would also back me up on this, but most of the pastors I know, they take that job very seriously because even me as leading this Bible study, it says that we're going to have to give an account for what we did. That's why I always pray what I pray before we start the Bible study because the last thing I want to do is inadvertently lead somebody down the wrong path or misinterpret what God's Word is here and cause confusion to somebody. I can tell you we all take that very, very seriously. The other thing I wanted to touch on that you said is it is all about our heart. And it's so important to even prepare our hearts before we read the Bible, before we pray, before we go to church, whatever we're doing. Because if our heart's not in the right place, well then, whatever we're doing, we may think we're being, in quotes, you know, air quotes, religious. In fact, I've heard sometimes people will say, yeah, Larry, you're a pretty religious guy. And I'll go, nope, please don't say that about me. I do not view myself as religious because I view that term meaning, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff on the outside, just like these religious leaders, but my heart is totally messed up. It's not about being religious. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus wants, a personal relationship, and he wants our heart, not just doing a bunch of things that a lot of people think that's going to earn blessing or earn our way to salvation or something. And Jesus rails on that all the time. That's exactly what he's talking to the religious leaders about. That's really good. Anybody else? Larry, the the story of the woman with the demon-possessed child is, is to me a good reminder that if we will just humble ourselves and worship Jesus, the, the amazing things he can do in our lives. And then, you know, it's interesting. You also see that, that it, it kind of snowballs and just builds on itself like compound interest where he starts healing all the Gentiles and feeding everybody. Absolutely right. And it may have been because this one woman came out and worshiped Jesus and showed her faith and others were there and saw this happen. Now they see the miracle and they're now being exposed to Jesus. So if we'll step out in faith, other people are watching us, and what impact might that have on others when we're going through a really difficult time? And I can just imagine this woman is probably very distraught over her demon-possessed daughter. We aren't told how long that condition had existed, but my guess is the community around there all knew about it too. And the faith that this lady had. She didn't come and complain to Jesus and say, something's wrong with you, God. I don't believe in you because look what has happened to my daughter. She comes very humbly and says, I know you can cure my daughter. You are Jesus. I'm nothing. I'm a dog. 
that's all I am. And if you can just help me here, please help me. She says, Lord, help me in verse 25. That's the humility. That's the heart that God wants, where we have total dependence on God. That's that spiritual poverty. We can't do anything for ourselves. We're totally dependent on Jesus to work in our lives. And then look what happens. All the multitudes come out and they start being healed and coming to faith. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up for my weekly blog and podcast by sending a text message to 56316 and then type Larry in the text box and hit send. I hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.